last week in chapter 19, we saw, we saw Pilate doing all he could to have Jesus released. Uh, but he had this, as we saw, a fear of the crowd. Uh, and so we saw this physical act that he did of just washing his hands regarding uh, that matter. He didn't want to be responsible for that. Obviously, he still is to some degree. Uh, as we discussed last week, we all are uh, to some degree. So we also looked at the way that Jesus was uh, punished and scour scourged. And in that, we talked about uh, for most men to go through that scourging, that alone would have killed them. But we know that God had preordained Jesus was going to die on the cross for our sins. So therefore, whatever beating they uh, put out, uh, whatever scourging took place, it wasn't going to kill him because it wasn't according to God's plan for that to happen. So uh, we talked a little bit about how badly he was beaten, beaten more than any man has ever been uh, beaten uh, to the point of being unrecognizable. And then uh, we see that Pilate then did that final act of giving in to the crowd as the crowd was chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And uh, so we see in verse 16, chapter 19, then he delivered him uh, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Oswald Chambers has a quote that says, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all hell terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. You see as you, you know, as you go through your jobs, as you are involved in your communities, schools, whatever it is, you see a lot of people wear a cross necklace, don't we? And for those of us that have relationship with Jesus Christ, we know, we understand, we hold very dearly to us what that means, don't we? Uh, we recognize not only the seriousness of what took place, but we rejoice in it as well. For us, it's a symbol of thanksgiving and rejoicing because of what he did for us. I've always thought that it's interesting how that cross, that necklace, is such a great evangelism tool. Because so many people wear a cross, and yet there are so many that totally misunderstand what it's for, what it's all about. And so we have that opportunity, just making that comment, well, I like your cross. What, what does that mean to you? That, that you and why do you, why do you wear that? And so it can start up a conversation with someone uh, regarding what the cross really means. Uh, it's not just symbolic. It's not just a piece of jewelry that helps someone focus, uh, you know, on God. It, it, it's, it's something that we can wear as to, for, for us uh, to be able to use to let someone know that we are saved, that we have uh, turned our life over to Jesus Christ. And so as we wear it, we also need to be prepared to explain what it's all about, don't we? How many of you here have no problem putting Christian bumper stickers and things on your car? How many of you just won't do it? Some people just won't. It's like because then I'm accountable, right? It's like if I put on a, a fish on the back of there and I cut somebody off in traffic, whoa, no, what's that going to do? You know, so some of you just don't like to junk up your car with, with bumper stickers, you know. Uh, whatever, whatever the, <laughs> the case is. Uh, the, the, the cross is kind of the same thing. It's a symbol of something other than just religion. For us, it's all about relationship, isn't it? So uh, today, most people think of the cross as a symbol of glory and victory. But in Pilate's day, the cross stood for the worst kind of rejection, shame, and suffering. Uh, most of us, uh, if not all of us here this morning, have heard many teachings, I'm sure, over the years regarding the crucifixion of Jesus, what was done, how it was done, uh, the pain, the suffering that he endured, uh, and we should never minimize that, that, that gruesome act, that, the details of, of his crucifixion. But I think sometimes we neglect to give the necessary focus on the statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. 
In fact, the Lord made seven distinct statements from the cross. Now, not all of those seven are recorded in John's gospel, but again, as been our practice, uh, and as it should be, we look at all four of the gospel accounts in harmony when we're looking at these things so that we can get the full counsel of God's word concerning this particular event. Verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of, of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, uh, for those of you that have had the opportunity to go to Israel, there is a place that is considered to be the traditional place, at least from the Christian perspective, of where the crucifixion may have taken place. There's, there's certainly a lot of credibility to that particular location. Uh, the, the Catholics of well, as well have the place that they believe that it happened, and they have a big shrine built there. But the one that uh, most evangelical Christianity looks at as a place, truly does look like a skull on the side of the, uh, the rock formation there. That's where a lot of the uh, rocks were taken from. It was a rock quarry there to pull down rocks to, for the building of the, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, but even to this day, as you look at it, it does have that uh, vision, if you will, of, of what uh, a skull would look like just kind of the way it's formed. You don't have to use a whole lot of imagination to see it. So that could be it. It was in very close proximity to the garden tomb, which we know from Scripture as well. So it could be. Uh, we don't know for certain. But that's the reason that they point, uh, call this out in the Scripture, is that the place of the skull is because all of the, the rocks that were quarried there, what was left looked like uh, a skull. So we know from the other gospel accounts that there was a guy by the name of Simon of Cyrene. He was chosen at some point to carry the cross or carry the cross beam for Jesus. And we're not going to look at that in depth this morning, but I encourage you to go back and, and look at that yourself. Uh, back in the early 90s, there was a song by, uh, by the, a guy by the name of Ray Bolts that uh, is called Watch the Lamb. And I encourage you, maybe if you get a chance to look that up, listen to that song, because I think he really, in the lyrics of that song, really captured this whole event for uh, Simon of Cyrene. He had his two sons with him, Alexander and Rufus, which we don't know much about from Scripture, although when we get in the book of Acts, there is an Alexander mentioned, and there are some scholars that believe this was one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene that carried the, the cross. So... Uh, Watch the Lamb is the name of that song. You guys might want to check it out. It's, it's, it's really good. Uh, but Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 tells us, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've probably heard teachings on that before, but you think about that verse and you think about what Simon did having to carry the cross and... Uh, he had no idea of the significance of what he was doing, but it's just a neat picture for us of uh, that relationship with Christ and, and, and we ourselves picking up our cross and following him. Verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, I, I found it interesting. I don't know if you guys have seen this before, that in all four gospel accounts, there's really no reference whatsoever to how Jesus was crucified. But just to say, in all four Gospels, they crucified him or took him away to be crucified. They're just using that phrase or that terminology to uh, define what took place. So in the Gospels, uh, there's no mention of the nails in his feet and hands. There's no mention of the position of his body on the cross. There's no mention of the size or the height of the cross. The only detail that's given to us is that the cross stood between these two thieves hanging on a cross. And I find that very interesting as you look at that because, again, most of the time when we uh, teach or share about the crucifixion of Jesus, there's a lot of time, a lot of uh, input regarding how it was done. Now, again, I don't want to minimize that at all because we know it was just horrible. It was gruesome, the, 
that what they did there. But I think maybe that it's, it's because that they wrote in a manner of the, of, that was current to their day. And that was that crucifixion was fairly common, wasn't it? So they knew if they just used the word crucifixion, most of the people, most of that audience would know exactly what that meant. You know, even Luke, Luke, Dr. Luke, who goes into great detail in his gospel account, he doesn't even go into that kind of detail on what it was all about. So I think it was just that it was a very accepted practice of punishment and death uh, as the sentence was carried out on many that they knew what, what it was, uh, it would be understood in their writings what that was all about just by saying crucifixion. So there's not a lot of detail given to us regarding that. However, there were Jewish historians like Josephus and others that wrote about the crucifixion and how it was carried out in most cases. And then some years ago, they even discovered uh, in some of their diggings in Jerusalem uh, the skeletal remains of someone who had been crucified, and they, uh, it confirmed where the nails were placed, in the, in the, actually in the wrists and, and, and in the feet. So uh, we have that information available to us, and it does help us to better understand uh, just, just how gruesome and awful that was to die by crucifixion. But to stay with our text, I wanted us to look at what do the Gospels actually say about this scene? What is going on uh, at this time? Rather than getting into any uh, speculation that might lead us down another path, what does God's Word say regarding this? Uh, we know that He was nailed to a cross because He has the scars. He personally refers to the scars in the Gospel accounts, especially in John. Flip over real quick just a few pages to John chapter 20. Just a few pages to the right, John chapter 20, and we'll read that account, uh, starting with verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus himself was referring to uh, those scars, right? So we know that that took place. Uh, we just know that it happened. But again, in the gospel accounts that we have at the time of the crucifixion, there were things that these writers were focused on, and those are the things that I want us to focus on as well. Have you ever thought about the fact that this is Jesus in his resurrected body after the crucifixion and the resur resurrection, and he has these scars? And we know that when we get to heaven, we'll have resurrected bodies, right? But you know the only scars on anyone in heaven will be the scars that Jesus has, and that we'll have these uh, perfect bodies. You know, I, I imagine what that'll be like myself. You know, I'm like you've heard a lot of other pastors say, I think I'm going to look like a surfer dude or a Greek god, or something like that, but blonde flowing hair, you know, crystal blue eyes, you know, I'll probably get up there and I'll have a hook nose and <laughs> walk with a lamp or something, you know, <laughs> but it will be the body that God wants me to have, right? It will be that resurrected body. So, we have in the written account of the four gospel writers a focus on not how the crucifixion itself was carried out, but more so a focus of what was going on and what was being said at the cross, more importantly. Again, for us, the focus should be upon what is documented for us in the text, not upon endless speculation of what we suppose or what may or may not have happened, okay? Verse 19, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have, I have written. So basically Pilate's saying, I'm not going to change it. What I've written, it's going to stay, and this is what it says. So imagine, if you will, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written three times in each one of those languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, which would have been the common languages of the day. So as people walked by, they would see that sign, and most times, uh, historians say, there was some type of a parchment that was placed on the cross, on the person themselves, to define what the uh, act was, what, what it was they were being punished for. And so in this case, uh, it, you could see that the two guys hanging on each side would have said something about they were thieves or whatever, and Jesus would stand out, wouldn't he? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, there were a lot that didn't believe that. There were some there at the cross that did, but nevertheless, that's what was placed uh, on the cross. Now, about these two thieves that were on each side. We talked last week and the week before about a guy by the name of Barabbas that was released because it was the tradition at Passover that they could request that one of the prisoners that were currently in jail at that time would be released, and Rome would release them. And we don't know for sure. Again, I'll tell you right up front, this is just speculation on my part, but these could have been... Barabbas's cohorts, couldn't they? Uh, Barabbas was into a lot of different things. He was arrested for those things, uh, taken into captivity. Then he was released. The text says that he was a murderer and caused a revolt. Uh, so we don't know for sure, but uh, how unfair those guys would be looking at this is that, oh, wow, they're, they're still going up on the cross, and here Barabbas was was released, and they're probably thinking my crime wasn't near as serious as his. Whatever the case, they're there. Jesus is hanging between them. We have that level of detail in the text, don't we, that says the cross was between the two thieves. So I think it's obvious Pilate had this sign placed on the cross to further insult the Jews. He was always looking at a way to, to get at the Jews. We've seen that in the text in the past. But also it served another purpose. For all of these people traveling by in these, in these different, different languages, they would have seen this. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Verse 23 tells us, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one Peace. So in simple Bible interpretation, the text in context says what here? It says that there were four soldiers there at the cross of Jesus. Were there four for each cross, four total? We don't know for sure, but we know that there were at least four there uh, you know, at, the, at the foot of the cross of uh, Jesus. So uh, John points out also here that the tunic that Jesus had been wearing was without seam. So Jesus' seamless tunic should remind us of his role as high priest because in Exodus chapter 28, it tells us that the high priest wore a seamless garment. So we have that to look back at. But we can also see that because of the makeup or the focus on the makeup of the tunic itself, and it's the only garment mentioned specifically, and it was without seam, it was probably more valuable than any of the other garments. So you kind of look at this, and it's a precursor to grave robbers almost. They weren't waiting till the person was dead, but it was obvious they were going to be dead. So let's take all of his earthly stuff that he has, let's sell it or something. Let's see if we can make some money off of this. Um, how would that feel to be hanging on a cross and to know that 
wow, here they have, and it's being divided up. You're seeing all of that unfold right in front of you. Uh, the pain, the suffering that you're going through certainly would, uh, that act would be very minimal in, in, in you know, what was going on right now or later at that time for you. But still, that would just be, how low is that, you know? So to, to just see your earthly possessions being gambled over, if you will, while you're hanging above, dying, just watching all this take place. Verse 24 says, They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. You find that in Psalm 2218. <laughs> you know, one of those uh, prophecies fulfilled in the Old Testament right here. Just a very small thing in so many ways. We look at all the prophecies regarding Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, uh, the miracles that he performed, now his uh, arrest, his death, all of these things that we have written for us prophesied in the Old Testament to, to this level of detail that his garments themselves were going to be, uh, lots were going to be cast for those. Uh, it gives us insight into the detail, the level of detail that God goes into in his word, doesn't it? So that we gain more understanding uh, on the things that are important to him. Uh, and and we, uh, in that, we see uh, how uh, the things that he had prophesied through the Old Testament are coming to pass in the New Testament, and it's a faith builder for us, isn't it? We read those things, we see them come to pass, and it builds our faith that we know that what God says is truth, it's going to happen, so we can trust in his word, we can trust in his promises. Verse 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now the other Gospels reference other women, women being there. Uh, so from the text, we do not know that who, who all it was, who everyone that was there. We don't know that. We don't have that level of information. But what we do know is that there were a lot of women there. Where were the men? Uh, we don't know. There's some, some verses in the other Gospels that reference there were others that stood afar off. Uh, could some of those have been his disciples? We just don't know. We don't have that level of detail there for us. But we know that there were women there. It says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And then there's Mary's sister, his mother's sister, who, if you look at the other gospel accounts, her name was Salome, especially Mark chapter 15, verse 40. You can find that. And Salome, it's interesting, is also referenced as the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, who was Zebedee? He, know, from other scripture, we know that he was the father of the sons of thunder, James and John. John, who's the author of this gospel, so that being the case, then, John is Jesus' cousin. Isn't that interesting? So, John himself, we're going to find there are these women that are there, but we know that John himself is there as well. So Salome was the mother of the sons of thunder, James and John. Salome was also the one who asked Jesus if her sons, James and John, could be one on the right and one on the left when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Do you remember that whole scene? Salome going before the Lord, asking that when he comes into his kingdom, could one of my sons be at your left and one at your right? I have to wonder what Salome's thinking right now, standing there, seeing Jesus on the cross with a thief on his left and a thief on his right, wondering, wow, does she think back to that time when she had that conversation with Jesus? And now wondering, this could be my sons hanging up there as well. Well, Scripture tells us that there were two other Marys present. 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, from the other gospel accounts, we know that she was the mother of the one uh, James the Less, is called, and Joseph. I think that's interesting, too. Uh, my name is James, and to be referred to as James the Less, how'd you like that subtitle <laughs> on your name the rest of your life? Why am I less? <laughs> you know, what, what brought that on? It's kind of like doubting Thomas, isn't it? I mean, you get that little tag put on your name, and uh, you got to live with it the rest of your life. But here we have James the Less and Joseph. We get that from Mark chapter 15. And then also there was Mary Magdalene. So we have these specific women at the cross documented for us in Scripture. We also have the reference to many other women in Matthew chapter 27, who were looking on from afar. But again, where, where are the men? There's none mentioned except for the disciple whom Jesus loved. John doesn't even call himself by name, but we know through our other studies through the book of John, that's who that is. But also after the crucifixion, we see two guys kind of step up, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So where are they at the cross? We don't know, but they did go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus, so maybe, maybe not. We don't know for sure. Verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, there's John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So we're going to see that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know from our previous studies, a disciple Jesus was very close to, right, uh, takes his aunt, Mary, into his own home to care for her and watches, watches over her. Jesus entrusting the care of his mother to the disciple whom he loved, John, his cousin. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it into his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now we have documented for us in the Gospels, seven statements that Jesus made from the cross, this being a few of them here. We're going to look at all of them the rest of the time we have today. We know and understand that anything that Jesus says is of great significance, isn't it? Even while he's hanging on the cross, our Lord, our Savior, is speaking things from the cross that are God-ordained that he would say and speak, so they hold a high level of importance. Everything that Jesus said is important, right? Not only what we have documented for us in Scripture, but anything that he would say to us, put on our hearts, even to this day, right? We need to pay attention to those things. But certainly we would see great value in his last words before his death. What does he have to say before he dies? We cannot know for certain the exact order in which he said these things, but I believe it's worth spending time looking at each of these statements and their significance. While hanging on the cross, Jesus utters these seven powerful statements that reveal his heart and his ministry to us. We're going to look at those this morning. Statement one, if you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. Statement one, and you can title it forgiveness. That's what's going on in this statement. And we see it in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, we're going to look at this in biblical context as it was going on at that time, but could it not be said Jesus could still be saying that to this day to his Father, interceding for us? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Many times we step into sin with eyes wide open, don't we? And then there's other times that that we sin that maybe we're initially we're not aware of, and then we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, you know, you should have uh, you should have 
check that out with me before you move in that direction because he's there to help us, to protect us, to guide us, to counsel us in those things. But you notice as he's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This first statement on forgiveness, Jesus didn't ask for forgiveness for himself, did he? He didn't need it. He was sinless, so there was no need for that. Jesus did not ask for a quick, painless death. If some of us were in the same situation, going through the same thing, we would be praying, I'm sure, oh, Lord, get this over quickly so I don't suffer as much. Jesus didn't ask for that. Jesus knew his purpose for dying on the cross, as we've talked. He went into this fully submitted to the Father. Jesus did this by his own it was the will of the Father, but Jesus, obeying the will of the Father, went on his own. Jesus didn't ask God for vengeance. He didn't say, rain down hot coals upon the heads of everybody here. Kill them all. You know, get rid of all of them. Uh, he could have done that as God. He could have said anything he wanted to there and actually done anything that he wanted to there, but he didn't. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus prayed on their behalf. He's still doing that today, isn't he? As he intercedes for us with the Father, he's praying for us. He's interceding for us because of the love that he has for us. In this statement, because of love, he's forgiving his accusers. Now, <laughs> you look at what all takes place, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, at least in the way my mind thinks, you'd be like, okay, uh, I'm going to forgive them now. That seems to make sense to some degree, doesn't it? But while you're hanging on the cross, going through that punishment, that severe pain that he's going through, in that, to have that much love to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The statement was a fulfillment, an example of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Have you ever had any of that stuff happen to you? You ever had someone curse you? I didn't hear exactly what they said, but as I went by them on the road, it was obvious they were not happy with me. Do good to those who hate you. There are some hateful people in the world, and as we stand up for things like, like abortion, as we know we should, there are some real haters out there in regards to that, isn't there? Who spitefully use you and persecute you. You ever have somebody talk about you, make false statements regarding you? What is Jesus saying to do here? Love them. It's hard when we don't even like them, isn't it? Hard to love in that way, but we have this ultimate example of someone who has done wrong more than any wrong that's ever been done against us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I think it's a great verse to quote to keep things in perspective for us, right? Again, as you're driving down I-25, somebody flies by you, cuts you off in traffic, just to say, yeah, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> no idea at all. So if Jesus could forgive those who persecuted him and in the way that he was persecuted, we can be confident that he can forgive us of our sins as well, right? That's why he's there. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some unrighteousness. We all have some, but he's going to cleanse us from all. Which says to me, everything, anything that I've ever done in the past, anything I'm doing now, anything that I will do in the future, all of that unrighteousness clumped together, he cleanses us from all of that. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Statement number two, salvation. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. 
he tells one of the thieves in that scene, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot of speculation from different uh, religions, different doctrines, different theology regarding uh, the cross, the crucifixion, and everything that took place there, that this was definitely a, not a death bed confession, but a death cross con uh, confession, if you will. And how can that happen when there are uh, those in different religions that believe you have to be baptized to be saved? How does it work for this guy? Doesn't very well, does it? He certainly wasn't baptized, uh, immersed in water the way we recognize baptism. But nevertheless, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I believe that to be 100% true. It's in God's word. Obviously, it's true. But did Jesus or did he not have the power to make that statement? He did. He's dying for not only the sins of the guy that's talking to him in this regard, but for the other guy as well, for the guy who is arrogant, who is spatting off things to Jesus that just don't make any sense in regard to who Jesus is. He's dying for both those thieves, isn't he? That's hard to picture when you think about it because we, we see this dialogue that takes place between him and the one thief. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just like that, he lets him know. And the other guy, you wonder... Is he not hearing any of this? Is he not paying attention? Obviously, he's got a lot going on right now, but still, you would think he would see that. But Christ is dying for both of them, the ones who would respond and those that wouldn't. He's still dying for all of them, isn't he? It's just a matter as time goes on, will they recognize and accept the fact that he did uh, die for them? So, Jesus extended eternal life to all, doesn't he? Jesus openly forgave others. Jesus did not allow his own suffering to distract him from his offering salvation. Think about that for a second. Everything that he's going through, he's still taking the time because of the love that he has. Has this dialogue with this other gentleman hanging on the cross. didn't allow his own suffering to distract him from offering salvation to him who would believe. Jesus' words moved the heart of this thief. Jesus' words continue to move hearts to repentance, don't they? We see that phenomenal work, the miraculous work of God's word in someone's life changing their life. The simplicity of the gospel speaking into the lives of others so that their hearts are changed. And just as he was not too preoccupied to minister to the thief on the cross, we can also know and understand that he's never too busy for our concerns, is he? Can you imagine being in a worse position than being crucified on a cross and still finding the time to minister to someone else who was guilty <laughs> hanging on the cross next to you, and he wasn't? That should give us comfort and peace to know that he loves us that much, that no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we've done, he's there for us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Highlight, put an asterisk next to it, arrows, stars, well, that verse is huge, isn't it? How many of you were sinners when you recognized Christ as your Savior? That You don't even have to answer that. I won't even ask for a show of hands. Every one of us. And the promises he gives us regarding being with him as well. We saw in John chapter 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So not only saved by the Lord, 
getting to hang out with the Lord for eternity. You think about that sometimes, what that will be like? <laughs> it's, it's one of those mind blowers, isn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness. All that he did for me, he loves me, and he wants me to hang out with him for eternity. That's a sweet deal for us, isn't it? Given what we are. <laughs> but the key thing to that to remember, he wants to hang out with us now. Not just in heaven, but here now as well. He wants to develop that relationship with us so that we're tight with the Lord, right? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I, I, when I say that, I don't mean any disrespect at all. Jesus is our friend. He loves us. He wants to spend time with us. And it's interesting that the problem is we, we are the ones that find the words here, but we're the ones that fall short on that, don't we? He's there for us. He wants to hang out with us. And it's like, uh, you know, maybe when you're in school, that one kid that you're just kind of like, mm, you know, he's always the last one picked, you know, on, a, on teams or whatever. You don't really want to hang out with him. If you were that person, I didn't mean no disrespect at all. Uh, I was that as well uh, at times with certain things. So, uh but Jesus wants to hang with us. He wants to spend time with us. And as we spend that time, as we give him that time, man, our love for him grows. And we see that the love for, that he has for us, we see it in, in new and more exciting ways each and every time. So statement number one was on forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Statement two, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Statement number three, it shows the affection that Jesus has. In our text today, John 19, verses 26 through 27, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. Again, hanging on the cross in agony and pain, suffering greatly more than any man has ever suffered, he's concerned about his earthly mother. Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. Now, in Jesus' first two statements, he clearly reveals his divinity. Also, in his first two statements, he clearly revealed his power to forgive sin and to grant eternal salvation, doesn't he? Those first two statements. Jesus' third statement now reflects his humanity. Jesus' concern for Mary was not just as a savior, but also as a son. Jesus also cares for us even when we don't fully understand God's plans. Did Mary completely fully understand everything that was going on there? I think Mary had some inside info going on, but I don't think she fully understood everything that was happening. John 15, 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So if Jesus died for all of us, if he laid down his life for all of us, we are under that category of being what? His friends. Laying down his life for his friends. The likes of us, he laid down his life for. Another mind blower, isn't it? But this affection that he had for Mary, he has for all of us as well. He laid down his life willingly for us. We see, think about this picture. We see where Jesus is concerned for his mother and has John to take her into his home to watch uh, over her, to care for her. Probably even to some degree, as John uh, was a disciple of Jesus, to maybe even teach and encourage, as I'm sure John did with everybody he met. But in the same way, because of the love that he has for us, he gives us his Holy Spirit, doesn't he? To help encourage us and watch over us. John 10, 17 through 18, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. No one takes it from me. Add an E to that. 
okay? <laughs> no one takes it from me. It's not what it says. It says me. I know that because it's in my notes the same way. Imagine that. But no one takes it from me. Another confirming statement for us that Jesus did what? He went willingly to the cross. He wasn't being forced by anyone to do that. He was submitted to the will of the Father. All of the Jewish religious leaders, Pilate, uh, from Simon of Cyrene, everybody that's involved in this whole scene are just pawns in God's plan, right? It was God's divine ordained plan that this was all going to take place. And Jesus goes willingly to the cross for his friends, us. Statement number four, entitled it Anguish. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 46, when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus at this point is expressing feelings of abandonment. God has placed the weight of the sin of the world on him. You know, we think about that sometimes, knowing that Christ died on the cross for our sin, and on the cross, all of our sins were put on him. But to put it in perspective, just real quick in your mind, think about your own sin from birth to wherever you are now. All of that sin combined, placed on Jesus, and then multiply that by the whole world for all time. Now, we know with the Holy Spirit, when we sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us of that, the weight of that, it's, it's heavy, isn't it? You ever uh, been in a place where you've done something against someone and you feel guilty, you feel convicted about it, and that weight that's just on you, it's just dragging you down like you're carrying a dead body behind you, right? And you just can't get away. Oh, I just got to make this right. This is driving me crazy. It's just weighing me down. That's one sin. Can you imagine the weight of all sin for all time placed upon you? And then coupled with the fact that placed on someone who had never sinned, really never experienced this because they'd never sinned. All of that sin poured out. We can understand why Jesus would say this, right? Yes, he went willingly to the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in eternity, God had to turn away from Jesus. God can't be in the presence of sin, right? He's holy. He had to turn away from his son. Jesus was feeling that weight of sin. He was experiencing now for the first time in his life separation from God. Now think about that for a second. If you go through life and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, all of this that Jesus is feeling right now, this separation from God, you are going to experience that someday if you die before you've given your life to Christ. Hell is hell because it's separation from God. God's not there. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? and from the words of my groaning. Another prophecy fulfilled in this particular scene that we're looking at. Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, for the first time, was experiencing isolation from the Father. He knew it was his mission. It was the focus of his ministry. It was the reason that he came, but it still doesn't minimize what he's feeling, what he's going through right here. What about God on the other end of that, having to turn his face away from his son in this moment because of all the sin that's being poured out upon him? We know John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We talk about the love that Jesus has for us. We know that 
we've experienced that. This verse, God so loved the world that he gave his son for that very purpose. Statement number five, the suffering. Again, in John chapter 19, verse 28, our text this morning, Jesus says, I thirst. Think about after enduring three days of imprisonment, trials, floggings, and crucifixion, Jesus, the Son of God, who made the waters of the world, experienced extreme dehydration and thirst in his time. Now, obviously, he did thirst physically in this statement. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 69, 21. But we also see the spiritual application as this Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Just look at that verse. It really encompasses what we can see Jesus would be feeling at this point. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, we know that Jesus was carrying out the will of the Father, but we also know from our study in John, Jesus spent an immense amount of time with who? With the Father. Getting his direction, getting his marching orders for the day. It wasn't just a, what am I supposed to do today, God? And he gave him his orders. It was intimate time of fellowship with the Father. The closeness that's, that's there. We can't even imagine that hardly, can we? We desire in our own lives, in our own hearts, to draw as close to God as we possibly can. But this relationship was different, wasn't it? This isolation that he's going through, this suffering. He says, I thirst. Jesus was thirsting for the presence and for the fellowship of the Father as he had intimately known it up until this time. For us, when we're in a dry time, we know it's only living water that quenches our thirst, isn't it? Time with Jesus. Jesus said back in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When we're going through those dry times, this week the leadership had the opportunity to go down to Tucson. That's a dry place down there. We went by as we drive over these bridges, pretty good-sized rivers with nothing in them. <laughs> they were dry. It's a very dry place down there. Uh, it was probably less dry during the time we were there than any time during the year. But it's a dry place, and we've all experienced that in our Christian walk. We're just, Lord, where are you? And he's where he's always been. It's just that we've gone to a dry area, haven't we? We've moved into an area of sin or something that uh, separates from us from him by our will, not by his. He desires to be right there with us. So in those dry times, to go to that well of living water, Jesus Christ, to be refreshed, to be renewed in him. Jesus was experiencing thirst himself. Certainly physically, we can understand that, but spiritually, not being with the Father, that intimate time with the Father. Statement six, victory. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. He says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This cry, Jesus' cry, was not the cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. Jesus' cry was not the cry of being conquered by death, but conquering death. Jesus' cry was not a cry of a person who was a victim of circumstances, but one who was in complete control of the circumstances. Jesus is willingly giving up his soul into the Father's hands, indicating that he was about to die and that God had accepted his sacrifice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. He was the one-time everlasting sacrifice for all, for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was victorious, so we are victorious in him because of relationship with him. It's getting close to the end now with Jesus on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. In statement number seven, entitled it Contentment. John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus said what? It is finished. Tetelestai. It's finished. That word has a lot of different uses. It really has the same meaning. One of the most important is at that time, if you would imagine the rubber stamps that we have uh, when we mark something paid, think about it in that way. A rubber stamp that says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Imagine you have bought something and you're in the process of paying it off. When it's paid, Tetelestai, debt paid in full. No other payment is necessary. It's done, it's paid for, it's complete. It's finished. How many times have we seen throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about his hour, his time? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. The hour is coming. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sum total of all of his ministry and mission, was leading to this one final cry. Everything that he had said through everything that we have studied so far, through all that's recorded for us in Scripture, all of those things leading up to this one phrase, right? It's finished. The last words meant the work the Father had given him to do was done. It was now accomplished. It was fulfilled. John 17, 4 says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The Father had a plan for the salvation of all who would believe. And he carried out that plan with the one time for all sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. If you study the priesthood in the Old Testament, and, and even during this time, there were certain duties, certain things that the priest had to do throughout the temple. And we know from uh, what's been defined for us of what the tabernacle was like, what the temple was like, that in all those furnishings, you don't see no mention anywhere of what? A chair. There's no chair in the furnishings of the tabernacle or the temple. Why is that? Because the priest needed to be serving the whole time they were there, right? There was a continual serving, a continual sacrifice that needed to take place in order to keep that relationship with the Lord because that's what the Lord had commanded them to do, right? But what did Jesus do here? After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. As our high priest, he could do that because the work was done, wasn't it? The sacrifice was complete. It was finished. There was nothing else to be done to be a covering for the, our sins. He completed it. It's finished. No more work is necessary on the part of a sacrifice because it was the one sacrifice of all time, complete, finished, done. Think of any other words that <laughs> come up with that. It's complete. You, you think about uh, just things we do in our own lives. Maybe we've got some project we're working on. Uh, I look forward to the day when we go, it's complete, <laughs> it's finished. <laughs> But there's still work to be done here. We know. We look around and we, how come there's this little white and gray and black and, and stripe all the way around the bottom? 
It's not complete. We're not finished yet, right? This work was done. It was complete. It was finished. He did the work for us because we couldn't, could we? We couldn't be the perfect sacrifice. He was. And we always need to keep that in the forefront of our hearts and remember that because there's many times in our lives where we act like or we do things to the contrary of that, don't we? The sin has been paid for. To confess our sin, yes, there's guilt that goes along with that. We're convicted. We feel guilty of what we have done. But yet, he's the one that we can take it to and know that it's covered, right? Why do we delay? <laughs> we shouldn't, should we? Oh, man, I messed up. I'm going to take this right to Jesus because he died for that. But it also should put us in a place before we step into sin to recognize what? Before I go there, man, he died for that. Look what he did for me for that. Why don't I just stay away from that in obedience to him? Why don't I just stay away from that out of thanksgiving and respect for what he did for me? It should cause us to ponder things more than maybe what we do at times. The sin debt had been paid in full for all of us. It was finished. Amen? Amen.